the most telling about who he was, and it's the way that I'd like to be remembered when I'm gone, is how genuinely heartbroken those people that really knew him, how genuinely heartbroken they were. That's what matters. So much more than all the fame and fortune and fans and haters and bullshit. There were so many of the people within his immediate orbit, from his ex-wife to other chefs and close friends, couldn't get through speaking about him on a segment of the documentary years after his death without breaking down crying. That's what really matters, man, in my opinion. How did the people that actually knew you, how did they feel? What is up, folks? Welcome to episode 219 of the Spun Today podcast, the only podcast that is anchored in writing, but unlimited in scope. I'm your host, Tony Ortiz, and I appreciate you listening. This episode is chock full of goodies for you. In this episode, I speak about Roadrunner, a documentary film about Anthony Bourdain. I give you an update on the Adnan Syed case, which is not only overturned like I told you guys last time, but spoiler alert, all charges were dropped. And I flesh out the details of that in this episode. I also speak about watching UFC 280, which was a dope card. I add another iteration to the goats doing goat shit segment of this podcast. Definitely stick around for that. And last but not least, I recap and review watching George Carlin's American Dream, which is a documentary directed by Judd Apatow, which won the Emmy Award in 2022 and chronicles the life and work of the legendary comedian George Carlin. But first, before we get into this week's show, I want to tell each and every one of you listening right now a great way that you can help support this show. Your support means a ton, and I'd really appreciate you taking one minute, 60 seconds, to listen to one way that you can help support this show, and then we'll jump right into the episode. The Sponsor Day newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to sponsoraycom forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address, and you'll get the very next one. Roadrunner, a film about Anthony Bourdain. It's a documentary released earlier this year in 2022 from Oscar-winning filmmaker Morgan Neville. His groundbreaking documentary explores the life and legacy of beloved chef and television personality Anthony Bourdain. That is the official synopsis, 
as stated on HBO, where you can all stream it if you want to check it out. Now, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned Anthony Bourdain in the past here on the Spun Today podcast, specifically around the time of his untimely death. For those of you who may not know, he was found dead at the age of 61 at Le Chambord Hotel in France on June 8th, 2018. But I'll circle back to that a bit later. I first got put on to Anthony Bourdain, as many others did, when he was first on Rogan's podcast many years ago. And true to its form, when podcasting is at its best, in my opinion, you're able to gleam a lot about a person when listening to long-form, uninterrupted, unscripted conversation. Especially when you do so for three hours, six hours, nine hours, 12 hours. There's something about that format that truly harvests vulnerability. And when the guards get let down, as they do sporadically throughout an episode, you get insights on not just what a person thinks about when it comes to topical issues, although you do get that too, but you get more insightful things like philosophies on life things, which is something that I love. And then what's even cooler is when, and this is true for my experience with getting put onto Bourdain, when you're like, oh, this dude seems cool. Let me check out, you know, what it is that he does. You know, this book that they're talking about or this show that they're mentioning. And then you check out an episode of Parts Unknown, for example. And it so satisfyingly fits with your impressions of that person. And that's just like the cherry on top. And Parts Unknown, I'm sure I've mentioned this in the past, but I'll reiterate it here, is a show that Anthony Bourdain hosted and wrote the monologues for himself. And it's essentially a food show where he would go to different places, different countries, different cities, different towns around the world to different food spots at all levels, you know, whether it be fancy French restaurants to a dive bar in Jersey that is known to have better Philly cheesesteaks than Philly. It's a real episode, by the way. But it was so much more than that. It was insight to the culture that he was visiting, that he had this unbelievable gift and unique talent for being able to show us and tell us about the nuances of a culture on so many levels that you felt like you visited that place. At least I did. And I'm not saying that to blow smoke. Like I truly felt like I visited these places. His ability to convey the nuance within a culture was akin to the flavor profile of different dishes that they had on the show. It's truly amazing. One thing I also want to do aside from a recap and review of this Roadrunner documentary, which I thought was great, is just highlight a few things that I've learned that I felt could have been a bit more highlighted throughout uh, the doc that I've gotten again from either podcasts or his show or articles that I've read or other interviews, etc. And one of those things that I want to highlight is his accomplished career as a chef. So in the early 70s, 1970s, graduated from a college prep school in Inglewood, New Jersey, and then enrolled in Vassar College, which he wound up dropping out of a couple years later. And Vassar, I believe, was in Massachusetts, and that's when he started uh, working within restaurants. Now, after dropping out of college, he attended the Culinary Institute of America and graduated in 1978. And from there, he you know, worked his way up to the point where he was running various kitchens throughout his career in New York City. And a few of those included the Supper Club, One Fifth Avenue, and Sullivan's. 
Then in 1998, he became the executive chef, no small feat, at Brasserie Le Hales, which is based in Manhattan as well, New York City. And that was a restaurant group that had restaurants in New York, Miami, Washington, D.C., and Tokyo. Now, that was 1998. Like I mentioned before on his show, Parts Unknown, he wrote all the monologue. He loved writing. He had a he had a gift for it. I think this is where, aside from his personality, his outlook on certain things, that I definitely appreciated that writing aspect of him is what I think I gravitate towards most. And as the executive chef of Brassiere Le Hale, probably butchering that name, in 1999, he wrote a piece for The New Yorker, which is like the writer's magazine. He wrote this piece called Don't Eat Before Reading This. And that article led to him getting a book deal for Kitchen Confidential Adventures in the Culinary Underbelly, which he released in 2000. That went on to be a New York Times bestseller and catapulted him to this globe-trotting celebrity chef, quote-unquote rock star chef, that a lot of folks came to know and love. And that's when he stopped cooking. Well, not stopped cooking, but stopped being a chef as his day job. Now that book, which I haven't read by the way, it's one of those that are on the bucket list that I plan to get around to. But that book, and I've heard it described by him and others and I've read excerpts of it, well, by all accounts, was very open about his own personal demons and battles with addiction. He did heroin, coke, psychedelics, drank a lot of alcohol battles with depression, but also put that absolute grind of the restaurant world on the map, which is another place that I kind of connect with Bourdain on in that I worked in a couple restaurants growing up. My first job actually was at a restaurant and neither one was a chain. It was a very mom and pop type of shop. Both of them were. And what I mean by that is that you really get to see how the sausage is made in those kinds of places versus our friends that worked at chains or like corporate type setting. Whereas for me, I was 16, 17 years old, looked a little bit older. You know, one day I was peeling potatoes in the kitchen and washing dishes because the dishwasher didn't show up and it was super busy. The next day I was busting tables. The day after that, I was bartending behind the bar. The day after that, I was helping to cater a party of 150 people. The day after that, I was waiting tables. And in working in these fast-paced type of environments, you get exposed to a lot. And that rock star chef image and persona is a real thing. And a lot of those guys that I worked with drank a lot or did coke and, and shit like that. There was actually a chef that I worked with that years later, and he was like a known like cokehead. But years later, I found out that he in one of those restaurants, um, you know, went to take a nap or something downstairs in the basement and just never woke up, died downstairs. But yeah, it's a, it's a crazy lifestyle, especially if you let yourself get caught up in that whirlwind. And, you know, that's exacerbated by any underlying issues that you have, like being addicted to certain substances or battling depression and shit like that. So in a lot of ways, even though it ended the way it did, I'd say that writing that book saved his life or at least prolonged it. Now, something that I thought was really interesting is that, you know, we, we came to know Bourdain as this like globe-trotting authority on cuisines around the world. 
but prior to him writing that book and then having his first show which was no reservations and then uh parts unknown he hadn't traveled he hadn't gone anywhere and they touch on something the doctor thought was really cool which was that he and his brother used to like comic books when they were kids and one character that he really liked in one of the comics was a traveling journalist out of all characters i don't know what fucking comic that was but <laughs> and i don't know i just thought it dope that he in a way manifested the life that he wanted and he was dreaming about being this world traveler which he ultimately became before even knowing what traveling was something else i really appreciate about bourdain is that he was unapologetically poetic with his words i know i personally can get that way sometimes with my writing like when i'm in that in that pocket but i'm always like not always but sometimes like self-conscious about it so i definitely appreciate the conviction behind how he says what he says in the doc they describe him as a great american storyteller and i definitely co-sign that so yeah within two years of kitchen confidential becoming a new york times bestseller he stopped being a chef he starts getting these tv shows and traveling 250 plus days out of the year and he wound up having a kid a daughter a lot later in life i read a, a quote of his somewhere that i'm gonna butcher but he said something to the effect of he didn't know what he wanted throughout his like 20s and 30s and he didn't become famous until his 40s he didn't have a kid until his like late 40s or early 50s and that he felt like he should have died in his 20s and that now he's like on borrowed time and he feels like he's in a, a stolen car driving through life and just looking in the rear view mirror waiting for the police sirens to like pull him over and tell him it's it's coming to an end something like that but that definitely had to be rough on him right like instant fame you know instant ish so much later in life and with other monumental things happening within your life like having a child and then compounding that with in order to continue pursuing this you know dream goal thing that kind of sort of came to be it requires 250 plus days out of the year of travel it's fucking insane his show went on to win several emmys a peabody award someone described him as always rushing and like rushing to the next scene where they were shooting a shot rushing to the next country or to the next restaurant and just rushing even when he had like nowhere in particular to go and i thought that was kind of revealing to his battles with depression or mental illness i don't think the the drugs were a factor anymore he still drank but he was supposedly clean in terms of you know using drugs and shit and something else that was erratic like behavior was him firing his cinematographer zach who had worked with him for like 12 years and it felt like he kind of like fired him off like a whim or like a bad interaction there was this artist called john lurie who's part of the doc that i think put it best in terms of like his personality there were people you know highlighting like his dark side and obviously others speaking of his light side and his accomplishments etc but this artist john lurie said that people say that he was dark that he had this like dark sense of humor which he agreed with but he was like but he wasn't edgar Allan poe he had a light around him something that seemed to come through as and this is just me speculating as something that was like eating at him and this is based on his child's mother's accounts and other folks interviewed was that he wasn't the dad that he wanted to be and i'm sure for me personally speaking as a father that's something that 
I wouldn't be surprised if that added to his depression. And this is slightly off topic, but there was this dope scene where, and th this is something to attribute to like the cinematography of how this documentary was shot, but there was a scene where he was in some village and there was like a shallow, they were in like a shallow river and they had a, a hog tied up and, you know, they cut it to like bleed it out. And then the blood is flowing into the the river and they're standing in the river board, the Bourdain is, and the other folks that are there. And they, you know, just killed this hog that they're going to, you know, cook and eat. And you see like the red river flowing around his feet. And then that scene melts into another scene of Bourdain's feet in a tuxedo and shoes. And then it pans up and he's like standing on a red carpet. So it's like the red river flowing with blood and then transitions to him on a red carpet. I thought that was like a dope sequence there. Another slightly off topic thing before I wrap it up with the last thing that I think should have been highlighted more is that his last IG story was him playing Violent City. I think I got that right. One of the scenes within it, which is a movie about vengeance for a cheating person. And that kind of foreshadows what I wanted to get into next. So I feel like they kind of glossed over this toxic relationship that he had with the last person he was with, Asia Argento. And although he obviously had addiction issues throughout his life, suffered from depression, I wouldn't say this toxic relationship that he had was what led him to ultimately kill himself. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was a big contributing factor, like the straw that broke the camel's back. And if it wasn't at all, it was very coincidental timing. And again, I feel like the doc glossed over this, so I'm going to give you guys a bit of background here. Asia Argento was an actress that was one of the very first accusers of Harvey Weinstein that spawned the whole Me Too movement. Harvey Weinstein apparently raped her, allegedly, and she was one of the first people to come forward about that. Bourdain was ride or die for his girl and was used his platform to be really vocal about and against the Me Too movement, or rather for the Me Too movement, but you know, against the pieces of shit like Harvey Weinstein, etc. Now, what wound up coming out was that Asia had a sexual accuser of her own. There was this kid, Jimmy Bennett, who she co-starred with in a film back in 2004. He was a little kid. And then fast forward to 2018, when he had just turned 17, like two months before, and she was 37 years old. He visited her at a hotel and like even her Instagram had like pictures of them two together. According to him and his attorney, he had other pictures of them, you know, not just like an innocent selfie, it was, like pictures of them both topless and in bed and shit like that. And according to his attorney, they accused her again, 37 years old versus him being 17 years old of sexual battery for taking advantage of an underage kid. She supposedly or allegedly gave him alcohol and, you know, pushed him on the bed and blew him and then rode him and then, you know, basically made made the dreams of every single 17 year old on the face of the planet come true. <laughs> but um, to make all this go away or to help all this go away, Anthony Bourdain, this is where he comes in, made several installment payments to Jimmy Bennett, totaling three hundred and eighty thousand dollars. So this is all, you know, swirling around his orbit. 
and he does this for again his girl being a ride or die and her in my opinion in a you know manipulating the situation telling Bourdain that she's broke she doesn't know what to do and that's when he you know offered to pay up and help make this shit go away then fast forward to five days before Bourdain commits suicide paparazzi catch her I don't know if catch is the right word but paparazzi take photos of her in Rome with another dude together and dancing in a restaurant and then it comes out that Anthony Bourdain and her are like kind of in a free open relationship which I don't know if that was like spin by some like PR person trying to make that become a non-story but five days later he was gone and again I'm not saying that she would be solely to blame or if any of this stuff with paying off the sexual accuser or her being with some other dude at a restaurant if any of that stuff even did bother him who knows maybe they weren't an open relationship and so on but if i was a betting man i'd definitely say that it contributed not any more or less than his life experiences and the demons that he's clearly dealing with throughout his life but they definitely seem to be contributing factors now in an article that i'll link to in the episode notes like i usually do it states that Anthony Bourdain was found dead in an apparent suicide at Le Chambard Hotel in Kaysburg, Vignoble, France. His body was discovered by fellow chef Eric Ripper, who had been filming an episode of Bourdain's travel show, Parts Unknown. Ripper became concerned when Bourdain missed dinner the night before and breakfast that morning. Sadly, by the time Ripper found Bourdain in his room, it was too late. Anthony Bourdain's cause of death was later revealed to be a suicide by hanging, and he had used a belt from his hotel bathrobe to end his life. He was 61 years old. And lastly, a couple weeks later, Bourdain's toxicology report showed no trace of any narcotics and only a trace of a non-narcotic medication, which he was on, I believe, blood pressure medication or something like that. I think he spoke about that on, on Rogan which getting into like jujitsu and shit helped, you know, cut that down. Uh, but the article continues to say that experts noted that his suicide appeared to be an impulsive act, end quote. Now, the last thing I'll say about the Anthony Bourdain documentary is that what I really love to see and what I think is the most telling about who he was, and it's the way that I'd like to be remembered when I'm gone, is how genuinely heartbroken those people that really knew him how genuinely heartbroken they were that's what matters so much more than all the fame and fortune and fans and haters and bullshit there were so many of the people within his immediate orbit from his ex-wife to other chefs and close friends couldn't get through speaking about him on a segment of the documentary years after his death without breaking down crying that's what really matters, man, in my opinion. How did the people that actually knew you, how did they feel? Roadrunner, a documentary film about Anthony Bourdain, streaming now on HBO. Check it out. I want to give you all an update on Adnan Syed. In episode 217 of the Sponsor Day podcast, I told you all about how after 23 years in prison, Adnan Syed the central person behind the acclaimed 
first season of the Serial Podcast, had his verdict overturned and was released from prison. His release was in light of two other suspects that were not pursued at the time. And the decision to either retry him or to drop the case altogether was still pending. And now all charges have been dropped. Prosecutors conducted new DNA tests on items from the crime scene that had never been tested before because the technology was not available at the time. And they found a DNA mixture of multiple contributors on Heyman Lee's shoes, none of which were Adnan Syed's DNA. Now that's bittersweet, right? Because on one hand, you're like, Adnan got justice. It took 23 fucking years for it to happen, but he got justice and he was set free. But on the flip side, Heyman Lee and her family haven't gotten justice and are on this roller coaster ride of emotions that I could only imagine, where they thought, according to the justice system, that they had the person responsible for killing their daughter come to find 23 years later that it wasn't him and that whoever it was probably still be out there. And I say probably just assuming that they're not either dead or locked up due to another crime. And I hear this and I'm like, one, how much do these DNA tests cost? And two, shouldn't it be mandatory in any of these cases like this where folks are maintaining their innocence and there is doubt, but through legalese, mumbo jumbo, technicalities, they're rotting away in a prison cell. Shouldn't it be mandatory to test and retest as technology improves? I think so. And I think so like in a, not in a damn, somebody should try to figure out some sort of way to make that financially feasible. Like I think so in a wholeheartedly, of course, that should be part of correcting for the wrongs of the justice system. And the financial aspect of it shouldn't even be, that should be just an afterthought. I hope that this story and stories like it have the eventual ripple effect of creating that type of change and indiscriminately pursuing justice for justice's sake. And on a lighter note, I'm definitely looking forward to, and I hope this happens, so I'm going to try to speak it into existence, but I hope there's another episode or two of Serial, how Sarah Koenig put out episode 13 to tell us about what was going on with his release and stuff like that but like an actual long form interview with Adnan. I got to check out also maybe, I know Rabia had a podcast of her own, Rabia Chowdhury, which was the person that took the story to Sarah Koenig in the first place. Her little brother and Adnan were best friends and that's how she knew him. And I know she had a podcast for some time and she was like at odds with, with Sarah Koenig on certain things. So she started her own podcast, but... I wonder if since there's like a closer, like familial type relationship there, if Adon would do her podcast, if she even still has it going. But yeah, we'll see. Time will tell. It would be dope, though, to hear his perspective after all this time. And not just after all this time, because we have heard from him, obviously, throughout the Serial Podcast. But it would be interesting to hear what his his mind state is after this outcome. But yeah, we'll see. UFC 280 was a dope card. It's been a minute since I've recapped an MMA event, but I had to do it for this one because it was such a good card. Starting off with Sean O'Malley versus Peter Yan. This was some Rocky versus Drago shit. 
not just on the American versus the Russian, but the underdog versus the sure win that everyone thought would win, including myself, in Peter Yan. Peter Yan is the number one contender. Sean O'Malley is ranked number 11. Peter Yan, I thought, was, although I was rooting for Sean O'Malley, realistically, I felt like he just got the shot because he's made himself such a popular name. He's like Connor 2.0, right? He has the confidence and bravado. I think less of an arrogance because he's kind of like more playful with it and a bit like self-deprecating sometimes, which comes off as like authentic. But he definitely has that that larger than life persona about him and kind of like talked himself into getting this fight. And Peter Yan is just like number one contender for a reason beast. And I thought Peter Yan was just going to like run through him. And I was surprised to see that Sean O'Malley was like piecing him up throughout the fight. I didn't think O'Malley won though, just based on Jan's takedowns and the stats breakdown afterwards. Like based on that, Jan won like each statistical category. However, on the flip side, Sean O'Malley is ranked number 11. Peter Jan is ranked number one. Peter Jan should have ran through him as I suspected. And he didn't. On the contrary, he was Peter Jan was all bloodied up and cut up. And they went back and forth, obviously, with Peter Jan, again, in my opinion, dominating, but statistically dominating, right? Like with the takedowns and and trading, but visually, if that makes any sense, O'Malley was piecing them up. And at no point, which was like the cherry on top, did O'Malley look like he didn't belong. And they got fight of the night. It was sick. But yeah, O'Malley got the decision. Now he is... I believe would be the number one contender, right? But because it was like an upset split decision, who knows how that's going to play out. But he definitely showed that he belongs up there with that like top tier echelon of fighter. Now, Aljamain Sterling versus TJ Dillashaw was a short lived fight. It got stopped in the second round. Aljamain Sterling looked phenomenal and TJ Dillashaw looked good until his shoulder popped out of his fucking arm, which was sick to see. And he fought through it. It was like midway through the, the first round. His shoulders like popped out. You could see it out of its socket. And he's like fighting with one arm and he's not quitting. And you can see he's like th- thinking about when Aljamain takes him down. He's like thinking about tapping a little bit just because of like the pain and shit. But he fights through it somehow. Gets to his corner. corner. Dwayne Ludwig or like one of his cornermen pop the shoulder back into its socket and then he starts fighting again in the second round and pops out again and then Aljamain just like takes him down and ground and pounds him and they have to stop the fight so it sucks because you see how good of a fight it could have been if TJ was was healthy but honestly I think Aljamain would have ran through him I really do like he looked that good like he dominated so much that even though TJ wasn't anywhere near 100% and probably shouldn't have even been in there fighting but Aljamain just looked so good that like thinking back to like TJ in his prime you know like PD TJ <laughs> Aljamain I think still would have done his thing and of course there were mad hilarious memes about uh, TJ Dillashaw's shoulder the funniest one to me was there was a picture of a door with a lock you know like those those locks that you like slide the lock in into place but instead of like that metal rod that's like slides from left to right to lock the door it's a cheeto (laughs) 
and they were like this is tj's shoulder trying to stay in place or being held in place or some shit like that was fucking hilarious and then we have the main event of the evening charles Oliveira versus islam makachev and islam is khabib's heir and was someone that even when khabib was the champ before he retired that there was like an understanding with within that camp that islam was the next in line like he whenever khabib would retire would take a shot at the belt and win it and keep it within their camp and everybody spoke so like highly of him like it, it was like a like an of course like a no no brainer like that is what is going to happen because islam is that good and he's even better than khabib some some people thought khabib's father rest in peace which was the the head coach of that team supposedly islam was his favorite pupil and when his father died a couple years ago during covid i believe of covid i think khabib promised his mother that he wouldn't fight anymore he retired and then started like coaching islam and islam just like ran through charles Oliveira. i thought there was a couple times early on in the first where i thought charles Oliveira was just gonna yoke him like islam took him down charles Oliveira is super dangerous off his guard he throws a lot of elbows there was like a couple up kicks that he caught islam with that i thought he was gonna knock him out with but ultimately couldn't catch his submission on islam and then ultimately islam like outstruck him and knocked just knocked him out not knocked him out he i think it was technically a tko oh no wait wait i'm tripping he knocked him down for sure and then he caught him in a what was it he submitted him my bad 100 he submitted him it was like a i don't even know what it's called like drawing a blank right now it's he's like on top of him in his guard and he has one of his shoulders up and he's like choking him like by his face and his shoulder he has it like all like locked in as i'm describing it i'm like doing it right now like you guys can see what the fuck i'm doing but anyway islam tapped the man those fucking dagestani guys are different and what's dope is that they immediately called out volkanovsky who's on a tear in a weight class above and they said that they would go fight him in his hometown in australia and it looks like the ufc is going to set that up which is going to be sick because volkanovsky is definitely in his prime and that's going to be a sick fight what i did like to see is that there was this like beef in the stands afterwards between khabib's brother which is part of islam's camp obviously and kazmat chemaev which apparently they had words you know dating back to like a year ago and what was cool to see is that khabib put out I think on his Instagram or like one of the MMA IG pages, they put out a video of them all together. Khabib, Islam, Khabib's brother, Kazmat, and a couple other uh, dudes within that camp. And like put out a video explaining what happened, saying that they, they spoke about it. Like brothers, they squashed it. They no longer, no longer have an issue. And they can peacefully go back to, you know, dominating within their respective divisions, et cetera, et cetera. I thought that was pretty cool to see. Anyway, folks, that's my little recap and review of UFC 280. In this episode's addition to Goats Doing Goat Shit, the segment where I like to highlight folks that do dope things, especially when they're in a position not to have to. And by dope things, I'm usually referring to the quote-unquote right thing to do. There's this guy called Pastor Miki, who my brother put me on to, he sent me an interview, which I featured as the video of the week in my newsletter this past Monday 
for content like that and much more, feel free to subscribe at spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe. spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe. spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe. And he has a crazy story, a great story that you guys should check out. It's in Spanish for my Hispanically handicapped listeners out there. But it really is a dope story. I'm sure you guys could watch it with like subtitles or something. I'll link to it in the episode notes of this poor kid who I'll give you the cliff notes version grew up essentially in the streets. His mom was too poor to even keep him and gave him to her oldest daughter who had moved away and lived with an abusive husband. And this is in, in DR, by the way. So he wound up getting kicked out of there or leaving there by the because of the abusive husband and just growing up in the streets literally just slept in parks and did drugs and he somehow or another enrolled in a school where he was put onto poetry like a poetry book and they also had like bible study and stuff like that so he gravitated towards both started writing his own poetry and long story short has written some of the dopest bachatas that exist then he eventually got saved i believe this is a, the proper terminology and became a pastor but he still has has this like love for for music and just has a truly fascinating story you guys should definitely check out that interview but the goat in this story is not him although he definitely deserves a lot of praise but i wanted to highlight the bachatero that i'm sure any and all dominican listeners will know joe veras according to one of the stories that pastor miki told he went to this radio station where he knew Joeras was going to be at and wanted to get in front of Joeras because he had written a few poems and a few songs and he wanted to recite them for him. And, you know, he was literally a homeless kid with this notebook. And the people there, like the handlers basically were like, what are you crazy kid? Get out of here. Here, here's, here's 10, 10 bucks, you know, get out of here, go clean up or something. And he was like, no, you know, I'm a writer. I'm, I'm, a, I'm the best songwriter that you have ever heard. I don't know if he said that. He said something to the effect of, you know, being a writer and that before Joe Veras was known as an incredible singer or songwriter, somebody had to give him a chance to listen to him. And all he's asking for is for a chance just to sing one of his songs for Joe Veras and then he'll leave. He didn't want any money or anything. Joe Veras gets there, or I believe he recites it for the guy. And then they're like, did you write that? Are you serious? You really did write that? Like he loved it instantly. And then he let him recite it for Joeras. And I believe the song was La Vida es Así. Así es la And the crazy thing is that he wrote that song while he was in school about one of his teachers that he was in love with. And you know, he's a little kid in school, in love with his teacher, and he's paying attention enough to her to realize that she's in a relationship with some dude that doesn't really treat her right. And that's the type of love triangle that the song is about, right? Yo sufriendo por ella, y ella por otro se muere. And it was all written about a little kid in love with his teacher. And Joeras was able to elevate it and make it so like love triangle universal. And that is the power of good writing, good art, right? It becomes relatable to so many people in so many different ways. That's sick, right? Joe Edas loved it. Obviously, it's one of one of his biggest hits ever. But this is where the goats doing goat shit comes in. Pastor Miki, a kid, a homeless kid at that, 
doesn't know shit about shit. He even said they could have given me, you know, whatever, 100 bucks, 500 bucks. I would have gave him the, the song right then and there and said, yeah, here, you own it. Not knowing any better, obviously. They could have given him the TLC style contract right then, right then and there. Or not even, <laughs> even worse than that. Just a couple bucks and a plate of food or something. He would have been more than happy. But again, this is where the goats doing goat shit comes in. Joe Veras took him apparently like right then and there to the center where I forget what they call it. But like in DR, it's like a center where like you go to trademark shit and copyright things and took the kid, Pastor Mickey, as a kid there to register the song in his name, not in Joe Veras's name, in Pastor Mickey's name. So he can always collect royalties for that song and have ownership of that song, registered it in his name and then gave him like a legit contract you know paid him for for the song and give him a, a, a legit not i'm keeping the lion's share of this money in perpetuity type of tlc contract but gave him a contract and you know most importantly taught him game right there dropped the gems of this is what you do when you write a song this is how you register it in your name this is how you maintain ownership of it which pastor miki then went on to do with various other artists throughout his writing career and that is why Joe Veras is this episode's installment of Goats doing goat shit. George Carlin's American Dream is a two-part documentary directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio. It chronicles the life and work of the legendary comedian, and it's currently available on HBO. The documentary itself won an Emmy in 2022. George Carlin is usually on most people's top five that are alive lists. He's definitely on mine when it comes to comedians and one of those comics that make up my Mount Rushmore. I remember back in the day, one of my earliest memories of George Carlin was late high school through early college, like that time period in my life. And I used to download bits of his from LimeWire. You guys remember that? And I knew who he was by this point I had seen him on shows like back then Mars, Bill Mars show was uh, politically incorrect, if I'm not mistaken, and I had just known of him. I'm not sure if I had seen like a complete special or not, but also knew him as, you know, Mr. Conductor from Shining Time Station. But during that time period where I was downloading bits of his and just listening to them on my iPod, or actually, I think it was pre iPod even, it was just like a generic MP3 player, I think at that point. But that's when I got a better understanding of his material and had a deeper appreciation for his work and i just thought he was genius and he had that intellectual genius mixed with having the gumption having the fucking balls to say the things that he said to dare to think the way that he thought and articulate it in ways that we were all thinking but didn't know how to articulate it for ourselves and he was just one of those comics that made you think made you question and the documentary was dope. Judd Apatow does a really good job of putting together docs. He did a Gary Shandlings, which was great. That I think I spoke about on this podcast in the past, but had like so many comics, like the Chris Rocks, John Stewart's, Jerry Seinfeld's, Bill Burr's, all paying homage, telling how Carlin influenced them and helped pave the way for them, and sharing little anecdotes. Those of which you know had the pleasure of actually like getting to meet him before he died, and folks within his family like his brother Patrick Carlin which actually died this year in 2022 but he was in it telling stories of like their childhood and growing up his daughter gave a ton of 
you know, firsthand experiences. So the doc went over like a lot of things that I knew about Carlin, you know, being a fan of his, reminded me of some things that I forgot about Carlin, like the fact that he grew up in New York, which how the fuck could I forget that? But he did grow up in New York, New York City, and definitely put me onto a few things that I didn't know about him. And it was interesting to see they, a lot of his peers uh, from that time period described him as someone who de-transformed into who he was. So in his early comedy career, when he was, you know, trying to find himself and just like get gigs, he was a completely different type of comic. He was kind of hacky, I would say, by today's standards and was kind of like playing characters on stage. Not kind of. He was playing characters on stage and kind of sort of seeing what would work. And a lot of folks described him as like going through the transition kind of backwards where he started you know, putting on an act first for folks and then slowly became himself when it's usually the other way around. You know, folks start, you know, being themselves. That doesn't work. So they start putting on an act and, you know, taking on a persona. Whereas those who knew him knew him to be more of who we saw after that transition. He was closer to that than he was to, you know, like the goofy weatherman characters that he would do. And once he started finding success, you know, he definitely wasn't without his demons. He and his wife definitely lived it up. They drank a lot. They did drugs, weed and coke, I believe was like the extent of it. And as his career began to take off, his wife, you know, took a backseat to him and his career. And she slowly became an alcoholic. And eventually she wound up getting sober and she forbid him to do coke at home. And this is, you know, accounts firsthand from his daughter. And she would say that he agreed to doing so, and he was true to that. And he didn't do coke at home, but he would disappear for like two or three days at a time. And he would like go on these like benders of like drinking and doing drugs and shit. And, you know, he had this you know, fast money, rock star-ish type of lifestyle and all the sort of like cliches that we're unfortunately used to seeing and hearing about from stars, some stars. And it eventually caught up to him. He had his second heart attack and almost died and the story behind that was he was at a Mets Dodgers game and he loved the Mets by the way which I didn't know which is dope because I'm a Mets fan myself although I'm the worst Mets fan there is because I root for them on the strength of being born and raised in Queens and them kind of being like the underdog team in New York and I like rooting for underdogs but I could literally only name one player on the Mets which is Pete Alonso and that's just because he spoke at my job once. <laughs> See, I'm the worst fan. Anyway, he was a Mets fan and he was at this Mets Dodgers game and he started feel, feeling like this weird like chest pain and decided to like leave the game. And by the time he got to his limo, the limo driver had to rush him to the hospital where he was literally so close to dying that the doctors like called his wife, told her to say her goodbyes. And it was his second heart attack. And it was just this lifestyle catching up to him, you know? the drinking, the drugs. Thankfully, he lived. And I think post that time period is when we started to see the Carlin that I love begin to develop more. His wife, Brenda, wound up dying of liver cancer. And he said something pretty poignant during a Larry King interview, which I think makes sense to highlight for folks that have lost someone close to them and or will lose someone, which is that it's not just about the sorrow and the loss. It's also about the cherishing what you had with that person. I think that's pretty good advice. 
He then went on to marry again. He had a second wife, which was also part of the documentary and told some pretty cool stories. And I wanted to share with you guys a couple of clips of comics and some of the things that they had to say. There's a comic by the name of Sam J, which is hilarious. He has a, a special called 3am or something about 3am, which was really good. But she said something really spot on when it comes to George Carlin, which is that aside from the comedy, he seemed to have a different goal, which was like pushing thinking. Like he had a goal of trying to make people think. And even me like flashing back mentally to listening to the bits that I downloaded from LimeWire or Napster. I do remember them making me think, making me question, you know, and that's one of the main things that I loved about Carlin. You know, it was bits like him riffing on education and highlighting how that's a way that the government is trying to get us to think the same, dress the same with wearing uniforms, keep us all, all in line, get us ready for corporate America. And then he likened it to... I remember he said something along the lines of, I can show you a clip from the 1940s where they tried to do the same exact thing, except you guys wouldn't understand it without subtitles because the narration is in German. And he was like likening, likening it to Nazi Germany during World War II. Something like that. I probably butchered the bit, but that's like the essence of it. And another bit that stands out that I'm remembering right now was a bit about God and religion and God being all-knowing and caring and loves you and will do anything for you and give up his son for you. But if you disobey any of the 10 rules that he wrote down, he'll stick you in a place full of fire and burning and pain and anguish for all of eternity. But he loves you. And just, you know, like highlighting like the hypocrisy within religion and things of that nature, just stuff that, again, made you think, definitely made me think. So Sam J was spot on with, with saying that. And Carlin definitely appreciated the art of writing itself, and it showed in the attention to detail that came out of his bits. But Carlin himself said that he felt like an artist and a writer for the very first time when he wrote a bit called, The Planet is Fine, The People Are Fucked. He said writing and crafting that bit is the first time that he became, or that he felt like an actual artist and writer. I thought that was pretty dope. Here is a piece that comedian, writer, director Kevin Smith shared about remembering watching Carlin with his dad when he was a little kid. Nobody was allowed to curse in our house, but George Carlin was allowed. And when he was laughing with George Carlin, dad went away and there was Don Smith, some motherfucker I didn't know, but then my mother fucked, you know? So in those moments, I really got to see who he was and what he found funny. Uh, I was uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And my takeaway from that piece is the fact that there can be artists, not just comics, you know, it could be a comedian, in this case, George Carlin, it could be a movie, it could be a song, it could be a book, some form of art that allows you, gives you license to, and helps you connect with people in your life, whether it be a parent, a sibling, a friend, a coworker. And it's like, they're so ill at what they do. They're so undeniable at what they do that it kind of disarms you as the consumer and allows a father and son, in the example of Kevin Smith, to share a memorable, life-impacting moment. The next clip I wanted to share was Seinfeld speaking about his take on a particular bit. 
and then Jon Stewart's take on that exact same bit. Someone else's shit is on the table. Have you noticed that their stuff is shit and your shit is stuff? Get it off! Get that shit off of there and let me put my stuff down. A place for my stuff is highly intellectual if you look at the skill level, the brain power it takes to break that down. That is, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe to some comedians that's just a observational comedy bit. To me, it's the elevation of the ordinary and the disassembling of the ordinary. And that's, there's no better example of that than that bit. And I like Jerry's take there because he's, obviously he's biased, right? Because he's known as an observational comic, does a lot of uh, topical type of bits, gets a lot of shit for it, even though he's an absolute genius at, at what he does. But he obviously has that bias and like that kind of like chip on the shoulder. But I loved his take on highlighting how difficult it truly is to boil something down to its most basic parts and make it as genius as Carlin did with that bit and how he called it the elevation of the ordinary. I like that. And Jerry, if you're hearing this, you have an open invitation to come on the Spun Today podcast to speak about your writing process. Hit me up whenever you'd like. And uh, here's John Stewart speaking about that same bit. Since it seems like this lighthearted, superficial analysis of like the way people value their own belongings and how they display them and those types of things. But my shit is stuff and your stuff is shit really is the through line for the lack of empathy of people. Like even when you think about cancel culture, things like that, like my opinion is valid but your opinion is cancel culture and bullshit. Like, my thoughts are stuff and your thoughts are shit. And it's just this little bit that he did on shit you put on your dresser. Thank you very much. Good night. And I hope I see you another time. Good night, all. Have a good time, you. Bye-bye. Thank you. And Stuart's take on it is genius and how he takes it to another level and applies it to modern day issues and current events. And he obviously sees it through that slightly political lens because that's the cloth that he's cut from. And at the end of the day, that's the genius of great writing, great comedy, great art. It stands the test of time and is applicable in a myriad of ways. And that's what makes it so palatable to so many different types of people from different walks of life. And I want to leave you all with this quote of George Carlin's, which I definitely co-sign and appreciate. He said, quote, it's the American view that everything has to keep climbing productivity, profits, even comedy. No time for reflection. No time to grow up. No time to learn from your mistakes. But that notion goes against nature, which is cyclical, end quote. And that, folks, is my little recap and review of George Carlin's American Dream, a two-part documentary which won the Emmy in 2022, directed by Judd Apatow and Michael Bonfiglio, available now on HBO. Check it out. And that, folks, was the episode 219 is in the books. Hit me up on Twitter at Spun Today or find my page on YouTube and let me know what you thought. I hope you all appreciate listening as much as I 
enjoy putting the episodes together for you. I'd really appreciate if you stick around for a couple minutes, just listen to a few different ways you can help support this show. Your continued support means a ton and I really appreciate it. Until next time, peace. What's up folks, Tony here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast as much as I enjoy producing it for you. Here are a few quick ways you can help support this show. You can support the Spun Today podcast by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. There you'll find my merch section where you can cop the iconic podcasts versus anybody t-shirt in a wide variety of different colors and all different sizes. Also, if you're into cycling, you can cop the super soft, comfortable, minimalist design Spun Today Bike Club t-shirt. Also available in a bunch of different colors and all different sizes. There are a few other designs of different types of t-shirts. Definitely go there and check it out. SpunToday.com forward slash support. It's the merch section. We can also get a dope coffee mug. I have coffee mugs with the brand new redesigned Spun Today logo on one side and the tagline that I end every show with on the other which is start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. The mug is available in both black and white because we don't discriminate here at the Spun Today podcast. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash support and check out the merch section. You can support the Spun Today podcast by checking out my writing. You can go to spuntoday.com forward slash free writing and check out some of my free association writing, which is intended to be some cathartic free writing but oftentimes doubles down as motivation for myself and others. At spuntoday.com forward slash short stories, you can read a bunch of the different short stories that I've written and actually listen to the audiobook versions of those short stories there as well. Another way you can help support my writing is by going to spuntoday.com forward slash books and checking out what I have in store for sale. Digital copies are available in all formats whether it be Kindle, iBooks, or a different type of e-reader. You can also purchase paperback copies if that's your preferred reading method. Currently available, I have my nonfiction, Make Way For You, which is a collection of freely written thoughts that were curated and put together as tips for getting out of your own way. Also available is my debut time travel novel titled Fractal. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash books to show your support. Support the Spun Today podcast by following me on social at Spun Today on Twitter, at Spun Today on Instagram. Please also check out and like my Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Spun Today, and subscribe to my YouTube page as well. On my YouTube page, not only will you get these full length episodes, but you'll also get to check out some chopped up clips and bonus content. To get to my YouTube page, just search Spun Today on YouTube or click on any of the YouTube icons on the footer of my website. Also, don't forget to rate and review this podcast wherever it is that you're listening. It really does help. The Spun Today newsletter is available to each and every one of my listeners absolutely for free. All you have to do is go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and drop in your email address. What I'm going to do is brighten up everybody's least favorite day of the week by delivering five curated things within my weekly newsletter every Monday at noon. You're going to receive a photo of the week, a recommended podcast of the week. I listen to tons of podcasts from an array of varied interests. I cherry pick the very best ones so that you can check them out. I also share a video of the week, which can be anything from a tasty recipe to a dope rap battle to an enlightening TED talk. I also share a quote of the week. And finally, 
for my fellow wordsmiths out there, a word of the week so that you can step up your vocab. Again, this curated list is yours absolutely free by going to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe and dropping in your email address and you can unsubscribe at any time. Again, go to spuntoday.com forward slash subscribe, drop in your email address and you'll get the very next one. If you want to help support the Spun Today podcast financially, you can do so by going to spuntoday.com forward slash support. Here you'll find a few different ways that you can do so. You can shop on Amazon, but first go to my website, spuntoday.com forward slash support, click on the Amazon banner, which will take you to Amazon's website where you do your shopping like you normally do. It will not cost you anything extra, but I will get credit for driving traffic to their website. Another cool way that you can help support this show is through Patreon, where you can set up reoccurring donations to my podcast, whether it be $1 per show, $2 per show, etc. And depending on how much you choose to pledge, you will receive some Patreon perks in return. Things like free writing pieces, free bookmarks, free digital copies of my books, etc. Again, my Patreon link can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. You can also set up similar reoccurring payments via my Ko-fi page. And if you want to send a one-time happiness bomb donation, if you will, you can do so via my PayPal link. Again, all of which can be found at spuntoday.com forward slash support. If you're a fellow creative, a cool way that you can help support the Spun Today podcast and actually be part of the podcast is by filling out my five question questionnaire located at spuntoday.com forward slash questionnaire. Here you'll find five open questions related to your craft, your art, what inspires you to create, what type of unrelated hobbies you're into, and what motivates you to get your work done. You can choose to remain anonymous or plug your website and your work. And once you submit your questionnaire, I read your responses on a future episode of the Spun Today podcast. It's completely free at no cost to you. And what I like to say about it is that if your responses could potentially spark inspiration in someone else, why not share that? SpunToday.com forward slash questionnaire. And as always, folks, substitute the mysticism with hard work and start taking steps in the general direction of your dreams. Thanks for listening. I love you, Aiden. I love you, Daddy.